Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola, and concerts by the CSO on Thursday, November 17th through Sunday, the 20th, feature guest conductor Manfred Honeck and cellist Gauthier Capuçon. The program includes the overture to Ruslan and Ludmila by Mikhail Glinka, Diary of a Madman, a concerto for cello and orchestra by Lyra Auerbach, and after intermission, Symphony No. 5 by Dmitry Shostakovich. Here are Philip Husher's program notes on Lyra Auerbach's Diary of a Madman, a work lasting about 35 minutes. For an artist, being creative is a matter of life or death, Lyra Auerbach wrote nearly a decade ago, long before she began Diary of a Madman, with its roots deep in the fate of her own family. If you are not creative, you can't be an artist, she continued. Music emerges from silence, poetry from a white page, painting from a blank canvas. The artist brings to life ideas, sounds, images, giving form to that which was formless before. Yet that silence, that blank page or canvas, is not empty, it's full of infinite possibilities. Auerbach is the unusual artist who knows not just the blank page, but also the bare canvas and a world of possibilities. She is a published poet. She also writes prose, both fiction and nonfiction, and an exhibited visual artist. Her bronze are sometimes related to her musical compositions and inscribed with lines of music, in addition to her work as a musician, as a pianist, conductor, and composer. She holds multiple degrees from the Juilliard School in New York and Hanover University of Music, Drama, and Media in Germany. She has published three books of poetry in Russian and once Excess of Being, Aphorisms, and Artworks in English. She's also written a children's book released earlier this year. A is for oboe, the orchestra's alphabet. Spoiler alert, C is for conductor, striding on stage with a magic baton followed by a force field of attention the conductor doesn't play. Auerbach's catalog as a composer, unsurprisingly, is large and wide-ranging. She has composed string quartets, ballet scores, choral works, songs, chamber music, concertos. She was the soloist in the premiere of her piano concerto in Stuttgart in 2015, symphonies, the fourth, Arctica, for piano, choir, and orchestra, was premiered at the Kennedy Center in 2019 with Auerbach at the piano, transcriptions of works by Shostakovich, even cadenzas for concertos by Mozart. Her three-act opera, Gogol, to her own libretto, was premiered in Vienna in 2011. Diary of a Madman, Auerbach's new cello concerto, was commissioned by the Chicago Symphony along with three other orchestras and is being given its U.S. premiere here this week. The soloist is Gauthier Capuçon, who has taken several of Auerbach's works into his repertory over the past decade and gave the world premiere of the concerto in Munich in January 2021. Like her opera, Gogol, Diary of a Madman, draws on the life and work of Nikolai Gogol, the 19th-century writer of Ukrainian origin. It was composed in 2021 at a time when Ukraine was not yet synonymous with the horrors of war, and in that sense, it is a work of uncanny foreboding. In this concerto, Auerbach's own history merges with the terrors of today's daily headlines. Diary of a Madman is a work as personal and haunting as the old family photograph of her mother and grandparents that is reproduced in this week's program notes. 
As Auerbach has written, Often we are unable to see what is right in front of us, but through the metaphor of art, we recognize our own face. This is why a melody or a line in a book can move us to tears as it becomes personal, and through sharing this experience, we realize that we are not alone. And here are words by Lyra Auerbach on Diary of a Madman. My mother was born in 1940 to a Jewish family in Dnepropetrovsk, Ukraine. As Hitler's army marched east in 1941, my grandparents abandoned all their possessions, including their beloved library and cherished collection of musical instruments. They boarded the train heading toward Siberia. The news of ghettos and the fate of Jews in Hitler's territories had reached them. All they could do was to flee into the unknown. A few years earlier, my mother's grandfather, Beryl Fischbein, the head of the family, was tortured to death by Stalin's secret police. His only guilt was being born Jewish. While my family evacuated, their train was bombed by Hitler's armies. Another tragedy occurred. The family lost my mother's grandmother, Ethel Fischbein, in the confusion and chaos. She was grief-stricken after the death of her beloved husband, frightened and confused over all the changes and sorrows that the war and evacuation brought. Somehow, after the bombing, she was no longer with my grandparents on the train. They never found her and never learned of her fate. With my one-year-old mother, my grandparents deboarded in Chelyabinsk, a closed industrial city at the gateway of Siberia. I was born there some 30 years later. They never returned to their abandoned homes in Ukraine. In today's war, the invading army marches from the east, and more than a million Ukrainian refugees head west to Germany in a mirror retrograde of history. In 2021, I wrote a cello concerto, Diary of a Madman, inspired by Gogol's famous short story about Poprishin, a government clerk who gradually descends into insanity. Nikolai Gogol, or more correctly Romanized from Ukrainian Mykola Hochol, was a genius writer born in Ukraine, father of Russian language literature, and a visionary far beyond his time. I have been fascinated by his work all my life. Ten years ago, while composing my opera, Gogol, I read and reread everything he ever wrote. After my opera's premiere in Vienna, I received an open letter from Russia calling me enemy of the people, the same terminology used against Shostakovich and many other artists years earlier. My website was hacked, erased, and replaced by the slogan, Death to Jews and a Skull. It felt terrible, but I was not afraid. Since 1991, I have lived in the West, and since 2001, I no longer had any relatives in Russia. I was responsible only for myself, my words, and my actions. While composing the cello concerto, The Diary of a Madman, I did not think of Vladimir Putin. Now, Gogol's tale carries an eerie resonance. Diary of a Madman is a story of a lowly government bureaucrat with a minimal, easily forgettable personality. In his increasingly demented diary entries, Poprishin claims that a state cannot be without a king. As the storyline progresses, he becomes increasingly mad, starts having delusions of grandeur, and finally, on the 43rd of April of the year 2000, he believes himself as the king. 
Vladimir Putin was first elected president of Russia on the 7th of May of the year 2000. Gogol wrote his story in 1835. Finally, Popishin ends up in an insane asylum. Perhaps Gogol, the visionary and one of the greatest writers who ever lived, could see beyond the 19th and 20th centuries into the heart of the 21st, where we are doomed to continue the eternal tale. I think of my grandparents and my child mother in Ukraine leaving everything behind, heading into the unknown, evacuating from the onslaught of Hitler's army. Could they have imagined that 80 years later, the land of their birth would face again a very similar nightmare and that refugees would now head west to Germany to save their children? Gogol's visions and nightmares become a reality, with the whole world turning into a lunatic's asylum as the great tragedy unfolds. Who will stop the madman? Words by Lyra Auerbach and program notes by Philip Husher on Auerbach's Diary of a Madman. And now, on to Dmitry Shostakovich's Symphony No. 5, a work lasting about 46 minutes. Dmitry Shostakovich first came to the United States in March 1949. Before a crowd of 30,000 people in Madison Square Garden, he sat at a piano and played the scherzo from his Fifth Symphony. He arrived here as an official participant in the Cultural and Scientific Conference for World Peace, and he came against his better judgment because Stalin had telephoned him and asked him to. It is a disturbing and symbolic image, this great man, shy and unassuming behind his thick glasses, being trotted out to perform his best-known symphonic music on a piano in a sports arena. This was but one of the many battles Shostakovich fought in his war between the public platform and his private thoughts. A photograph taken at the time shows Shostakovich, his eyes avoiding the camera, standing uneasily between Norman Mailer and Arthur Miller. Dmitry Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony is perhaps the best-known work of art born from the marriage of politics and music. In 1949, when the Soviet composer came to America, the circumstances of its creation were as famous as the music itself. The facts are few but telling. On January 28, 1936, while Shostakovich was working on his fourth symphony, Pravda denounced his opera Lady Macbeth of Mstensk in an article called Muddle Instead of Music. Although the opera had been triumphantly received in both Moscow and Leningrad during the previous two years and in more than 175 performances, it was suddenly and decisively attacked as fidgety, screaming, neurotic, coarse, primitive, and vulgar. Although Shostakovich himself was not the recipient of such well-chosen adjective, there was no question of where he now stood in the eyes of Soviet authorities. Shostakovich went ahead and finished his Fourth Symphony, a vast exploratory tragic work, but when it came time to unveil it in public, he had second thoughts and withdrew the score. It waited 25 years to be performed. And then after a long silence came his official response, written in just three months. Shostakovich now issued the creative reply of a Soviet artist to justified criticism, the astonishing phrase that is forever linked with the work's official title, Symphony No. 5. 
Sorting facts from fiction is no mere pastime in discussing Soviet music. On such distinctions hangs our understanding of important musical impulses. Many a listener, as well as political historian, has pondered the justification for the Soviet criticism and the motivation for the reply. For the record, we can consider the composer's own words, written at the time, although they are less than fully enlightening. The theme of my fifth symphony is the making of a man. I saw man with all his experiences in the center of the composition, which is lyrical in form from beginning to end. In the finale, the tragically tense impulses of the earlier movements are resolved in optimism and joy of living. There is, of course, some incontrovertible evidence, like the wild success of the Fifth Symphony when it was introduced on November 21, 1937, in Leningrad, under the baton of Eugene Moravinsky, and the subsequent official embrace of Shostakovich speedily returned to favor. In the end, the music must speak for itself. In place of the screaming, primitive music that got him into trouble, Shostakovich now gives us clarity and brilliance, and despite intermittent tensions, we have a happy ending. Like Beethoven, Tchaikovsky, and Mahler before him, Shostakovich has written a fifth symphony that sets out to triumph over adversity, with the major key supplanting the minor in the final movement. The power of this music is undeniable, although not everyone was satisfied that its deeper content was really politically correct. After hearing Shostakovich's new symphony for the first time, the great novelist Boris Pasternak wrote, He went and said everything, and no one did anything to him for it. Clarity of form and texture is the hallmark of the large and not uncomplicated first movement. From the jagged Grosse Fuga-like opening theme to the climactic grotesque march over a relentless snare drum rhythm, Shostakovich takes pains not to lose us in intricate lines of counterpoint or disorienting harmonies. For every page of the score that calls on the full resources of the orchestra, there are countless others on which few notes are written. The second theme, for example, is a serene, soaring violin melody of wide leaps, we're never quite certain where it will land next, over simple chords that slowly change colors as they repeat their tum-ta-ta pattern. The allegretto that follows, a traditional scherzo and trio form, is as merry and good-natured as any music that came from Shostakovich's pen. If this were the only music of his that we knew, we might not be so quick to read a note of irony into the solo violin's teasing melody in the trio. But this is music in a singularly untroubled vein, and that is precisely what the Madison Square Garden crowd was meant to hear. Shostakovich claimed he wrote the Largo at white heat in three days, information that is hard to digest once one hears this calm and controlled music moving slowly over vast, wide-open spaces. The lucid, thin textures occasionally turn spartan, a solo oboe melody against a single sustained violin note, a flute duet accompanied by a quiet harp. But every phrase carries meaning. Every note is indispensable. If darkness blankets the eloquent Largo, the finale erupts with power and brilliance. A triumphant conclusion was mandatory, particularly after the troubled thoughts of the preceding slow movement. When the D minor struggles finally shift into an affirmative D major blast, 
It is only our hindsight, our knowledge of the undeniable sorrow and despair of Shostakovich's last works that suggests this happy ending is somehow forced. Program notes by Philip Husher on Shostakovich's Symphony No. 5. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.